to NURFM. It is 25 to 1 and this is Finance. Barry Preston. And today we're very lucky to have a regular guest on our program, Jonathan Payne, who is a local and international keynote speaker known for his contrarian views on world economics, finance and events. He's the author and publisher of a widely read investment newsletter, The Payne Report. And Jonathan was acknowledged as predicting the 2008 USA housing fiasco, which brought on the global financial crisis. Is a matter, in a matter, as a matter of fact, I'll get that in a moment. On our program in December 2005, Jonathan said, amongst other predictions, that America was experiencing a housing bubble. And in his pain report in 2006, he wrote, "The imbalances in the U.S. are simply unsustainable." Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Barry. Okay, now let's get into this. I've got a lot of questions for you, and some of these things I have no idea. European banks, I think about 523 of them, borrowed 489 billion euros, and then another 800 European banks borrowed 530 billion euros. Should we all rejoice? And for heck's sake, where does this all come from? Okay, well, that's, uh, it's a very good way to start our discussion today, Barry. Um, there have been some very significant developments uh, within Europe since uh, I was last on your uh, radio program. What, what in, in essence happened is the European Central Bank, the ECB, in what uh, is a refinancing operation or a long-term refinancing operation, lent, as you said, in December uh, about 489 billion euros to European banks and then followed that up more recently with uh, an even larger tranche, of uh, 529.53 billion euros. <laughs> so if you add the two together, that's rather a lot of money in anyone's language in excess of a uh, trillion euros. In essence, and as I've, as I've said in my pain report in the last few months, this was very much a game changer. If we cast our minds back to the third quarter of 2011, and in the pain report I was warning my readers uh, that things were deteriorating in Europe, um, what was happening was the banks were not lending to other banks within Europe. Uh, banks were not being able to refinance themselves in the capital markets and the interbank market, the wholesale market, was effectively closed for many banks. So we were approaching a Lehman-like September the 15th, 2008 moment. And we mm. needed a catalyst uh, to, to change that environment. And uh, sure enough, the, uh, the, the new president of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, who uh, I've, I've nicknamed Super Mario, uh, <laughs> yes. came through with a stunning, game-changing intervention and flooded the European banking system uh, with an excess of a trillion euros of liquidity. So it is a very significant event, and it certainly, I think, takes off the agenda here and now the possibility of a very severe credit crunch and or potential collapse of parts of the European banking system. Net-net, Barry, it's good news. But where does the money come from? Well, the European Central Bank has, in essence, uh, expanded uh, or leveraged uh, its balance sheet. In fact, the balance sheet of the European Central Bank is now in excess of €3 trillion. So they have leveraged very dramatically uh, their their balance sheet by by creating these loans to the respective um, uh, European banks. So it just comes out of the blue. They expand their balance sheet, create the loans. There's no money. In other words, there's no money printed somewhere. Well, in essence, I, well, I've called it uh, quantitative easing by the back door, and I don't want to get into too much jargon in our, in our brief time no. together today. But in essence, they've leveraged their balance sheet, and they've uh, infused or provided a significant increase in liquidity uh, to, to the European banking system. It is, I think, uh, de facto quantitative easing, money creation, 
um, but it is a three-year uh, financing arrangement. That's uh, the long-term re-refinance re- re- operation is for three years, where banks in Europe can borrow one percent for three years, and they've certainly taken advantage of that. Talking about that, and again in your report, government bond interest rates in normal times are reasonably stable. Yet the Italian bond yields peaked at 8.1% on the 2nd of December 2011 and fell to 1.758% on the 1st of March 2012. What happened? Well, this is, uh, as you rightly say, this is one of the most dramatic um, developments I've seen in the 28 years I've been in the investment industry. And as you correctly highlight, uh, two-year Italian bond yields uh, fell very, very dramatically meaning, of course, that two-year Italian bond prices rose dramatically because there's an inverse relationship between, mm. obviously, price and yield. And what, what, what that is a function of is that the Italian banks, in particular, borrowed money at 1% from the European Central Bank for three years and promptly went and purchased two-year Italian government bonds at the level of 8%, as you say, <laughs> in December. And the purchase of those bonds has led to a dramatic decline in the yields on those instruments. Uh, the Spanish banks did the same thing. So a lot of this money that the European Central Bank provided to the European banks has actually uh, fed back into purchases of their respective sovereign bond markets. But all in all, that, that actually softens the financing burden for Italy because Italy has a very high level of debt. Uh, as a percentage of GDP, it's uh, 120%. And so obviously now the, it, it, Italy will be paying less for borrowing in the capital markets in the months and the years ahead. This is Finance and Barry Preston. We're talking to Jonathan Payne today. We certainly are. Jonathan is the author author of the Payne Report, a local and international keynote speaker known for his very accurate and contrarian views on world economics, finance and events. Jonathan, China, always a favourite financial news story. Slowing growth, but still near, I believe, a long-term trend of about 8%. Some say a soft landing, or I read this morning from the JP Morgan's chief Asia analyst says that China is already in a hard landing. Well, should there be any effect on Australia's economy if less than a soft landing? Well, clearly China is um, front and uh, centre of much of the debate about the outlook for the global economy. Uh, I've been a very long-term believer in the China story uh, for for more than a decade now. And what we're seeing in China is that the second largest economy is now slowing. It is now maturing. It was simply implausible, certainly from a statistical uh, perspective, for the second largest economy in the world to sustain rates of growth in excess of 9 or even 10%. And as the, the economy matures and as it grows ever larger, we now, I believe, will see growth between 7 and 8 percent or thereabouts. In fact, the Premier, Premier Wen at the recent uh, National People's Congress uh, in Beijing in his State of the Nation address uh, just delivered a few days ago uh, indicated a growth forecast for 2012 of 7.5 percent. Mm-hmm. And that's around and about the level that, that I'm looking for this year. The, the challenge for China is that they're looking to rebalance their economy from an excessive uh, reliance on exports and, moreover, fixed asset investment growth, namely huge infrastructure projects, so on and so forth. And they're looking to rebalance it towards a greater contribution coming from domestic demand. And I think they will achieve their uh, objective, but it will take time. So my view is, um, in fact, there's going to be no landing. I, in fact, reject the terms hard landing or soft landing. I think China will have no, no landing per se. It will simply... 
uh, move towards a lower rate of growth uh, as, as it gets larger and larger. And I'm actually still uh, positive on the outlook for China. Interesting, because in your pain report, you covered the biggest emerging countries, gross domestic product from 2007 to 2012. You mentioned India's economy set to rise by 43%, China's by 56%, yet the world's high-income countries, a meagre 2%. You mentioned a revolution and a large measure of decoupling. In brief, what does this mean? Well, they're truly staggering figures. In fact, they come from the International Monetary Fund. And as you say, between 2007, which is the beginning of the, the GFC, the global financial crisis, and to the end of this year, um, the numbers are, are really quite remarkable. India growing 43%, China 56%, and the so-called high-income countries, which I call the submerging countries, only 2%. You know, th- this is, uh, you know, let the facts speak for themselves. Uh, uh, for a very, very long time, I've argued that there is a great new divide and that the so-called high-income countries that have been burdened by too much debt will see slower growth. But we are witness today to the remarkable rise of the world's most populous nations. Mm. And it's not just India and China, it's Indonesia and, and other countries in Asia, such as Vietnam. So, you know, the story continues to be an extraordinary one. And those statistics serve to illuminate the remarkable divergence Uh, between these two economic entities. The world's energy source, let's move away from this to oil, its supply base and the supply highway, it's not all that stable at present. Are we in Australia too complacent given this current situation? Well, we we do need to pay attention to the events surrounding uh, the Straits of Hormuz at the southern tip of the Persian Gulf because, in fact, 33% of seaborne oil, the oil that travels by tankers, passes through there each and every day. Approximately 20% of the world's total oil supply goes goes through the Straits of Hormuz. And I don't need to tell the the listeners today that clearly the geopolitical tensions uh, are rising inexorably uh, in the region. Um, We have President Ahmadinejad of Iran making various uh, aggressive statements. Indeed, also the Supreme Leader Grand Ayatollah Ali Khamenei (laughs) <laughs> uh, making some very um, uh, aggressive statements uh, in the last several weeks. And Israel is on the public record of saying that they will not tolerate a nuclear-armed Iran. And a number of uh, Israeli officials have, uh, in the last few weeks and months, said that uh, Iran is rapidly approaching a zone of immunity. Uh, and once they reach that, they'll be able to develop a nuclear warhead, and no one will be able to do anything about it. So... Israel has asked for uh, the, uh, the preemptive right uh, to attack uh, I- Iran and prevent such an event occurring. I obviously very much hope that uh, there is no war in the Persian Gulf. Mm. But clearly, because of the geopolitical fragility and reality uh, of the region, uh, we are seeing a commensurate rise uh, in oil prices. Uh, the Brent oil benchmark, um, which accounts for Pricing of or 50% of the world's crude oil uh, is very, very high indeed at around $125. West Texas Intermediate, which is a U.S.-based crude, is about $105.60. Um, so clearly uh, the concerns around the region are, are, are leading to a rise um, in, in oil prices. Also, that strait that you mentioned, I think it's only two kilometres or two miles wide where the actual huge ships or huge tankers travel through. It only needs one little bump there and we're all in strife. 
Well, uh, absolutely correct. Um, the, the passageway is extremely narrow. Um, each lane um, is approximately two miles or so wide. And uh, yes, it is a, a de facto choke point. And uh, it is an area of the world where a lot of people are paying a lot of attention at this moment in time. <laughs> Jonathan, on behalf of everyone at uh, 2NURFM 103.7 and our listeners in the Hunter Valley, thank you very much indeed for bringing us up to date. Uh, not all good news, but still there's some good news there with China and India, I think. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Keep safe. That's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Barry. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Finance and uh, Jonathan Payne, always worth listening to on Finance.